after 28 weeks in the dark days of the judges, we're turning the corner and we're in Ruth. We're going to be four weeks in this bright, wonderful book of Ruth. And um, it's, a, it's a really interesting dynamic that Ruth follows on the heels of judges in our English Bibles. Uh, Ruth is really um, what it looks like to live an exception when the days of the, of the judges are going on. I'm, I'm calling it faithful living in a hostile world because the story of Ruth takes place um, during these times of the judges. It's the exact time of what we just talked about for 28 years, 28 chapters, uh, where everyone's doing that which is right in their own eyes, and no one is looking to submit to the kingship of God. And in the midst of that, when the wheels are falling off, um, this story of Ruth takes place in the city of Bethlehem, which, by the way, is where the last two stories at the end of the book of Judges, chapter 17 and 18, 19 through 21, all of that takes place in Bethlehem, and now the story of Ruth is going to take place in Bethlehem. It is really the exception to how to live in a hostile world like ours when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. No one is interested in submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this, this is an inspiring story that, that really tells us how to live a faithful life, faithful to God, faithful to one another, in a hostile world where it's not popular and it's not easy to do this. Um, and so I'm really excited to, to turn the corner and to get into uh, the book of Ruth. We're going to spend four weeks here. We're going to take a chapter at a time. Uh, and uh, George Schwab, he introduces this book uh, this way. I think this is really helpful for us. The book of Ruth is for people who, like Naomi, feel empty and abandoned by God. Naomi was a widow who, in a time of famine, had buried both sons. Her husband's heritage was lost, his seed extinct, extinct, his life over. Naomi was collateral damage. She expressed with deep-seated bitterness that God had caused her plight. What in her life did not need restoration? In her hardship, she urged her son's widows to return to their empty gods. Uh, this book is written for people who have gone through difficult times. This book is written for uh, people who are experiencing difficulty and maybe even struggling with, where is God in the middle of all of this? I know he's in control, but is, is he throwing all this calamity at me? He goes on to say this, the book of Ruth shows how God gently and at first imperceptibly restores the lost and salves the caustic soul. If you find yourself in Naomi's place, who's the first main character we're introduced to, where you just go, I feel lonely, I feel distressed, I feel abandoned, things are not going my way. Whether that is right now or whether you've been that way in your life at some point, the book of Ruth has a message to you, and that message is God gently. And sometimes in ways we cannot even see is here to restore us and to be there for us because God is the center character in the entire story. And it's his work to restore. In the midst of the time when the judges are ruling, there's one family in the middle of all of the chaos of Bethlehem that is faithful to the Lord. 
Uh, I have a number of resources for you out there. Um, I want to recommend, if you're looking for just a short commentary, uh, the one by John Piper, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Um, it's affordable, it's short, it's readable. I would encourage you, if you're looking for something to supplement these messages, uh, that would be it. Um, there's also two other books that I have recommended there. Um, they're all on one word. I, the, the word chesed in Hebrew, it's God's covenant loyal love. Um, I own four books on that single word, okay? <laughs> I have four books that all discuss that one word of God's faithful covenant love for us. Uh, two of them I would really highly recommend. Uh, one of them uh, is Michael Card's book. He's a Christian uh, musical artist, and he's written a book called Inexpressible. It's very readable, uh, very impactful. I would encourage you, if you're looking for something uh, just to help you with understanding this theme, which is really dominant in the book of Ruth, to read that. If you're looking to uh, go a little bit deeper, there's another one uh, by Catherine Sankenfeld um, on this whole book, uh, a whole book on this word. And then there are two others. Uh, if you want to really go deeper, these are more expensive. You can borrow them from me. But um, great resources to kind of help you understand in the middle of all of the chaos that's going on and in the middle of what looks like God's abandonment, God is faithful to his people. And this word is really central to it. Uh, out at the Connection Center and online, I've got a number of uh, resources for you, short uh, front and back pages, three of them that in introduce you to the book of Ruth. Um, Danny Hayes is really great. He's a prof down at OBU. Um, the one by Ken Way is really helpful, and the one by uh, John Piper is really good, too, to just set forth kind of what do we need to know as an overview as we get into uh, the book of Ruth. And then I've got a couple more that are available for you out there. One is John Piper's application sections on chapter one that we'll be looking at today, and another one by Catherine Senkenfeld on the theology of the book. So I want to encourage you and push you uh, to take advantage of those resources, whether you pick them up on paper or whether you look at them online. And then I also have um, my chart on the book of Ruth out there. And a couple things I want to, want to point out to you in this um, first of all, I have titled Ruth, The Hidden Hand of God, and I really think that's what we see. Um, George Schwab was trying to capture it with gently and sometimes imperceptibly. Um, the, the way I would say that is God is active in this book, but it's sometimes hidden. Fascinatingly, there are no priests, no prophets, no religious people in this book, nothing, nothing that you normally are look for, looking for. Um, there's no Moses or um, Isaiahs in this book. These are just regular people, and in their regular everyday life, God gently, sometimes imperceptibly, with a hidden hand, is guiding everything to reverse all of the misfortune and turn it into something that is really wonderful. Um, in fact, the entire book, if you notice, there's an, an outline there that, that arches through the middle. The entire book is a chiastic structure. Um, a chiasm is a structure that kind of goes A, B, C, then B, A, and it comes back out. Um, this book is full of chiasms. Um, I, sometimes you can go crazy with chiasms. These are all, I think, completely legitimate. And the entire book is a chiasm. And the reason I point that out is because the book is about reversals. It is about taking what is bad and because of the, the presence and the intervention of God, turning it into something good in a way that God does throughout Scripture, and that's why these chiasms show up in Scripture so often, is God is about these reversals. He, he is about turning um, from the very beginning, even in the book of Genesis, what was formless and void, he turns into something blessed and, and good. 
Um, it is the way that God works in Scripture, and these chiasms are present all over. Um, another quote by George Schwab, he says this, Suggested below is a reasoned chiasm of seven pairs of pericopes with an additional detailed microstructure at the center. Hopefully this organization does justice to the sophistication, beauty, and depth of the book. I could care less whether you understand the pericopes and the seven pairs and the additional microstructure. That's not what I'm trying to explain to you. What I want you to catch at the end of that is the sophistication, beauty, and depth of this book. This book is written in a wonderful way. It's written as a great story that captures your attention, that narrows your focus. It's written in a way that, that even by its structure, um, in the big picture, and even in all of the smaller units, shows God's reversal of turning things around. Um, and, and the beauty and the depth of this book is just overwhelming. And there's, uh, there's no way I could share all of that with you, but I want you to, to, to trust me. And I, I want you to see the reversal from really how the, the book in, begins and how it ends. Um, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It's bad news, okay? Th that's how it starts. But the book ends, the very last verse of the book is a genealogy that says Boaz was the father of Obed. Boaz is one of our main characters. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. We start off with the days when the judges ruled, there's famine in the land. What we're going to see here in chapter 1 is there's death, there's bitterness, there's barrenness, and hopelessness. That's how the book begins. It begins in this bad way. <laughs> By the time you get to the end of the book, everything has been reversed, and there's the birth of Ruth and Boaz's child Obed. There's joy and rejoicing. Naomi, who's bitter, is now rejoicing. Um, rather than um, bitterness, there's a genealogy because now there's a family that was looking to be extinct had, now has a lineage, and that lineage is leading to David, which eventually leads to Christ, which is why the book is just full of hope. The book is a complete reversal. And by the way, this is what God does. <laughs> In God's story, he reverses things from formless and empty to blessed and good. He reverses things from death to birth, from hopelessness to hope. That is how God works. Um, I, I want to try to illustrate it to you. The thing that changes this is God's involvement. Because even though we're going to narrow the characters down to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, there are three main characters. There's even a guy, by the way, in chapter 3, we'll get to him. He's na his name is Old So-and-So. We don't even know his name. The, the phrase in, in Hebrew is fantastic. It's Poloni Almoni. Um, it's just, hey, so-and-so guy. We don't even want to mention his name. Because we want us to, we're, we're drawn attention to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. But in the middle of all of that, it is God through his hidden hand in the lives of regular people who changes everything around. Uh, I'm going to illustrate this uh, for you from something from the New Testament. This is from the second episode of the first season of The Chosen. Uh, this is the moment that I was hooked. Um, I read, I watched the first episode of The Chosen and was evaluative and trying to make sure that they were being biblically accurate, and I was making sure that everything was kosher. Um, and then I got to this line, and I was undone and hooked, and now Dawn and I have watched it twice. We're going to watch it again. Uh, it is a fantastic scene. This is not Ruth or Naomi. This is Mary Magdalene, who has had an encounter with Jesus, and she's been delivered. Uh, and uh, she is now telling 
her story to Nicodemus, who's, who's questioning her. I want you to see how she phrases the reversal, because it's the same reversal that happens in Ruth, and it is the same reversal that God would love to use in our lives. Watch this. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. So yes, I will know him for the rest of my life. <laughs> I was one way for her possessed. <laughs> for Naomi, bitter, hopeless, without a future. I was one way. By the end of the book, I was completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. That's how I want us to encounter this book. I want us to encounter this book as uh, God at the center of it, changing the destiny of our lives. And it's a complete reversal. And it's a complete contrast to the book of Judges. Um, Catherine Sankenfeld says this, the entire story of the book of Ruth serves as a counterpoint to the picture of the era of the Judges. It moves from the tribal level to the familial. It moves from warfare to constructive and peaceful individual actions. It provides examples of faithful obedience, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking attentively with God. Um, all of the bad things in the book of Judges are reversed in the book of Ruth. Judges shows the pattern. Everybody's doing that which is right in their own eyes. Ruth is an exception. In the middle of all that is going on in the time of the book of the Judges, and even in Bethlehem, where the last two horrible scenes take place, in Bethlehem there's an exception of people who are walking with the Lord. Judges is a decline. We described it as a toilet flush. Uh, Ruth is redemption, and it's light in the middle of the darkness. Judges moves from the triumph of the book of Joshua to tragedy throughout the whole book. Ruth is going to move from tragedy in chapter 1 to triumph at the end. Judges is all about breaking covenant, while Ruth is about keeping covenant. Judges is about leaving the Torah. Ruth is about living the Torah. Judges shows that they had the lack of a king. Ruth gets us to the line of the king. And in Judges, it's the leaders who are failing. And in Ruth, it's the little people who are faithful. And so I think most of you are probably going, yeah, I'm not a Moses. I'm not a David. I'm not an Isaiah. I'm one of the little people. This book is for you. And you may be saying, I don't feel special. <laughs> this book is for you. You may be even thinking, I feel abandoned. I feel like I'm just kind of walking through life, just trying to survive. This book is for you. The, the book starts with this opening scene, and, and I would say that it's teaching us that it's not unusual for God's people to encounter difficult times. That shouldn't be news to you, but this book begins that way with these difficult times of this family. In the days when the judges ruled, we know all about that for 28 weeks, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, again, where these last horrible scenes in Judges took place, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Um, 
do a couple things. Let me just give you the map. This is kind of the area in which they are. Uh, they are just a little bit south of Jerusalem, living in Bethlehem, a small town. It probably wouldn't have had more than about 20 families that live there. A famine comes to the land, and they're going to move over here into the land of Moab, about 70 miles away. You have to go up and around uh, the Dead Sea to make it over to Moab. And what, what happens on the plains of Moab is that there's fertility there because as the winds come across uh, the, the Mediterranean and then they go across the Dead Sea, they pick up some moisture and they dump out that moisture on the plains of Moab. So they go to a place where there's no famine in the land. And then here's what we read. Now, Elimelech... Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. By the way, yes, Oprah Winfrey is named after Orpah. Her family just didn't know the story well, and so they mispronounced it, and she's Oprah, but she's really named after this person here. Um, and the other was Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malion, Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Uh, I'm going to talk about their names for just a minute. Uh, it, it orients us to some things that I think are important. Elimelech means God is my king, and I think he's probably a man of faith. Um, I, I don't think we're supposed to evaluate him much because it's not the important part of the story, but he's probably a man of faith. Naomi's name means pleasant. That's going to come into play here in uh, a couple of verses. Um, but he's, he's basically living with God as his king, and, and Naomi is living this pleasant life. Married to him, they've got two sons. Um, they meet these two girls in Moab and marry them, but after they've been there for a while, uh, Malon and Kilion die. Interestingly, Malon and Kilion, those names mean weak and sickly. Um, my guess is that was not their original names. I just don't I mean, that's just not what you name your kids. You just don't name your kid, hey, this one's weak and this one's kind of puny. Hey, puny. I mean, you just don't name your kids that. Maybe, maybe they became that, or maybe this is reflecting back on the story and kind of setting them up as, um, oh, yeah, they were weak and sickly. But what happens is they die, <laughs> and her two sons die as well. Now, again, I, I want us to capture the big point of the story here and, and not read this story like moralists. I want us to read this story like a good story. And, and because of that, I think we need to not spend so much time judging whether their decisions were right or wrong. Should they have left Bethlehem? Why did they go to Moab? Should they have married the Moabite women? Here's the point. In all of that, God makes good come out of it. So I don't think the point is to try to evaluate and judge them. The point is, with what all that's going on, at the end of this, we get the birth of David. And that's a good thing. Um, Bob Chisholm says this, the tragic death of Elimelech and his son should not be interpreted as acts of divine judgment because there's not enough evidence in the immediate context or in the broader context of the Old Testament to sustain such a theory. On the contrary, it would seem that their deaths, like the famine and their move to Moab, are incidental details that set the stage for the story to follow rather than the main themes that should drive one's interpretation of the story. We're not going to evaluate whether they're making good decisions. We're just going to stick with the story. Um, Catherine Seikenfeld says it this way, The death of the three men serves to draw our attention to Naomi. Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilion, they leave. But now we're reduced and our attention is drawn. We, all we've got left here is Naomi and these two girls. Um, and they're just a regular family. I want to pause and just say a reminder. God is concerned with the lives of ordinary people, and he uses them in his grand story of redemption. Every one of you. Ordinary people who marry 
who experience death, who experience tragedy. Um, God is concerned with your life. And there's a book here written that's the antidote to this thing, this book where we illegitimately exalt Samson's and Gideon's and Jephthah's to be heroes. Um, they're not heroes, but here's a hero. Here, here are some heroic people who, who have their view of God changed, and they, they are faithful to be loyal to the covenant throughout this book. And, and God uses these ordinary people, and, and we're going to be reduced eventually, we'll meet him next week, to, to just Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. <laughs> Three people, regular people, not, prov- not prophets, not preachers, not priests. Now, what we move on to see here is that in the changing of their circumstances, some things are going to change. God's going to make the circumstances change. And it it provides these believers with some important choices. They're going to have to make some choices here. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid, I'm going to talk about this word, pakad, he'd come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Uh, Naomi is uh, in Moab. They've been there 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, They have been there. She's experienced all of this tragedy, and she hears that God has come to the aid of her people. This word, pakad, it can be translated paid attention to. God paid attention to them. God visited them. Whatever it is, when God pays attention, when he visits, when he comes to the aid, um, your destiny changes. Sometimes God visits, but he visits with judgment. It still changes your destiny. When this word is used of God, it changes the destiny of people involved. And, and God is changing the destiny by now bringing food back to the land, which draws Naomi back. She's going to bring Ruth with her so they can meet Boaz. And so that David can be born, and out of David can come the lineage of Christ. God's redeeming all of this. But she's going to turn, and she's going to go back. And uh, she begins to go back with her two daughters-in-law. They're on their way. As they return, it's pretty significant. George Swab says this, On a profound level, for Naomi to return to the land of Israel is to return to Yahweh. In fact, the verb return can be translated repent. This is a major turn from where she was going to where she knows she needs to be. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, they're on their way back. They've lived in Moab 10 years. Um, The husbands have died. They're on their way back. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. Um, some important things are going on here. She's saying, listen, I, I know I'm going to go back alone. You should stay here. Your prospects are better here. Uh, stay here. Um, find another husband. You're, you're widowed. Find another husband. Um, but they said, no, we want to go back with you. But an interesting word is used here. It's translated kindness, which is just such a, a weak translation of this word that I have the four books on. Um, th- this word is because you have shown chesed to me, uh, may God show chesed to you. Um, this, this is a significant word. Let me talk about it for just a minute. The word loyal love, chesed, I talk about it all the time. It's a well-known word in Hebrew. It's used 246 times in the Old Testament. It describes the loyal covenant faithfulness of the Lord 
to those within whom, with, with whom he is in relationship because of his grace. It describes God's faithful love to keep covenant promises. Um, this word is God's faithfulness to people who are in his family, who he's in relationship with. This is not grace. That's a different Hebrew word. That's chain. Chain grace is um, God moving toward us when there's no relationship. We're outside the family. We're not part of the family. And by his grace, he provides a way of reconciliation through a substitute, his son, Jesus Christ. By his grace, he moves us into his family. That's grace. This is a different word. This is chesed. This is God's loyal love. Once you're a part of the family, he's going to be loyal to you. Um, that's what's going on here. Um, Robin Rutledge says, in summary, we note that the heart of chesed is loving commitment within the context of a relationship. It represents both the attitude of loyalty and faithfulness to the relationship and the related parties and the corresponding kind and dutiful action often expressed as help or deliverance that arises from it. God's chesed for us is really significant. <laughs> I've got four books written on it. And, and what, what is being played out in this story is God's faithfulness to this family and their faithfulness to one another. And again, that's what I want us to see. I want us to see God's faithfulness to each and every one of us, and that that calls us to be faithful to him and faithful to one another. She's telling them to go home. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She's saying, listen, you're, the prospects are not good. Don't come with me hoping you're going to get another one of my sons. I'm too old for that. Um, stay here. Your prospects are better here. She's telling them, return home. And then we begin to get a little hint. It's bitter for me because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She's beginning to show that her interpretation of the situation is God is against her. Now, we'll have to go through the whole story to find out whether her attitude is right. Is God really against her? Or maybe is it just a hidden hand that is for her? And so this leaves the girls with a choice. Ruth is going to make the choice to be faithful in the relationship, and it has far-reaching significance. So far-reaching that Ruth's choice to remain faithful in the relationship with Naomi puts her in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew. She's just a regular person, but she makes a really important choice, and it has far-reaching significance for each one of us. Not priests, not prophets, um, just regular people. <laughs> Sometimes God puts you in a situation, and the choice you make will really have a significant impact in your life. At this, they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. This word for clinging is the, is the word for um, that's used in Genesis 2.24 uh, to describe uh, a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife. She's, this is covenant pledging. She's clinging to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Listen, Orpah's going back. You go too. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave. Interestingly, same word in Genesis 2, in Genesis 2.24 of abandon. <laughs> um, 
A marriage is supposed to be this. The husband and the wife, they abandon their original uh, loyalties to their family, and they start a new family for themselves. They abandon their father and mother, and they cling to one another. These are the words that are being used here. Uh, Where you go, I will go, she says. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Talk a little bit about what's going on here. She's pledging her full familial loyalty to her. Um, this is sometimes used in, um, in wedding ceremonies, which I think is questionable because it's the woman pledging loyalty to the mother-in-law. may not be what you want to do in a wedding. Um, but uh, this is a, a family pledge. And do you notice what Naomi does at the end? Rather than saying, oh, thank you, this is so great. I think her bitterness has blinded her so much of what she's got in Ruth that at this point, she just stops urging her. Okay, I can't, I can't get her to stop. But let's take a little bit closer look at what's going on here. She's making a, a, a pledge to be a personal companion. Uh, where you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you for the rest of my life. Um, they're going to share their living responsibility. She's sharing family ties. Your family's my family. Your God will be my God. She shares faith. And she says it's going to be a lifelong commitment. This is a significant pledge of loyalty. I will stick in this relationship. I will be faithful to it. And, and this highlights Ruth for us. Adele Berlin, who talks about how to read biblical narrative, she says this, in the case of Orpah, both she and Ruth initially react in the same way, expressing reluctance to leave Naomi. Only after prolonged convincing does Orpah take her leave, and of course Ruth's determination to remain with Naomi becomes in the eyes of the reader all the more heroic. Um, do you see how we're narrowing things down here? <laughs> We got a family. All the guys died. All we have left is Naomi. She's got two daughters. Now all we've got left is Ruth. We're narrowing the focus of where God's going to work. And I want to remind you, the choice to be faithful in the relationship has far-reaching significance. And for, for them as a family, it's going to result in um, their family being redeemed. But in the big grand story of God's redemption, it's going to result in Ruth being a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. But we've got to deal with Naomi's attitude here for a minute here. <laughs> with Naomi, your view of God affects your view of the world. Now, here's what Naomi knows. She knows that God is sovereign. She's going to have to learn that he's also good. Here's the story. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She'd been gone 10 years. Uh, she'd had a hard life. She probably had weathered pretty badly. Uh, she's back, and these women are going, can this be Naomi? I don't know if they're making fun of her, like, oh, my gosh, Naomi's back. You know, it's about time. Uh, she learned her lesson. I don't know if they're making fun of her, but they're, something's up, and they're just going, can this really be Naomi? Here's Naomi's response. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. Uh, probably better, he's testified against me, like condemned me. The, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Here's what she says. My name, Naomi, means pleasant. 
Um, don't call me pleasant. I'm not, my life's not pleasant. Call me Mara. It means bitter. It's the same word that, that Moses used when he's in the wilderness and he gets water from the rock and it's bitter water and he names the place Mara, bitter. But the important thing that's happening here is she's putting this at, at God's feet. <laughs> she's saying the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but he brought me back empty. He has, um, he has testified against me, condemned me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Um, her attitude recognizes sovereignty pretty clearly. In fact, she calls God um, Almighty. The, the Hebrew for that is El Shaddai. It's a word that's, that's powerful. Um, Bob Chisholm says, Shaddai is the sovereign judge who dispenses both life and death in accordance with his just decisions. It can be translated as the sovereign one. He's, he's the one who's up on the mountain in charge of everything. <laughs> he's almighty. He is sovereign. He, he's providing. He's doing everything that he can. That sovereign one is in charge of this. John Piper, in his commentary, he says this, Naomi is unshaken and sure about three things. God exists. God is sovereign. And God has afflicted her. <laughs> That's what she knows. I know, I know there's a God, and I know he's in charge of all of the stuff that's been going on. Um, I would put this a little bit differently. I, I want to tell you that in the midst of your most difficult times, and for me, my most difficult times in life, the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life, the only way I was able to survive the death of a son was holding on to these two truths. God is sovereign. God is good. God's in control. Nothing's happening that's outside of his control, even the death of my son. And God is good. And his definition of good is not always my definition of good. But God is sovereign and God is good. And I think if you can hold on to those two the theological anchor points in your life, that you may be feeling like uh, Naomi, abandoned, alone, hopeless, feeling like God is against you, Remember, God is sovereign and God is good. I think it's what the whole Bible is trying to teach us. God is sovereign, God is good. In fact, kind of the Old Testament, God is sovereign. He creates the world, destroys it with a flood, starts all over again, chooses because of his own sovereign purposes, the nation of Israel to be the people that he's going to work with to bring about Messiah. God is sovereign through all of that. He judges them, he brings them back. The New Testament is all about God's goodness and his his willingness to provide the way of reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. God is good. Genesis 1, and 27 says, we're created in the image of God, male and female. I think you've got the same deal going on there that we represent God. Males representing God's strength, his sovereignty. Females representing his beauty and his goodness. God's trying to convince us he's sovereign, he's good. If you can hang on to those, you're going to make it through the dark and difficult days of living in a hostile world when it seems like God is against you. Essential beliefs when you're suffering. God is sovereign. God is good. And how do you get there? Hey, just remember the gospel, okay? The gospel shows you that God is sovereign, and he has, he's orchestrated all the events in the biblical story to get us to his son dying for us. And his son dying for us is the good solution that God has that doesn't depend on our performance. God is God is sovereign. And think about your own experience. How many times has God been faithful to you when you look back? In the middle of it, yeah, it may feel like he's opposed, uh, uh, he's against you. But your experience, if you think about it, 
reveals God was for me there. He was for me there. And the whole story of God's word describes God being sovereign and God being good. So here's how this chapter one ends. Say no. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. Not very impressive for Naomi, it doesn't seem like at this point. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Barley harvest was beginning, a little hope. Remember they left in the famine? Now the barley harvest is beginning. It's just a little ray of hope at the end of this pretty tragic story. The barley harvest is beginning. The other thing it does is it sets up the rest of the book, which is going to be this fast romance that takes place in four months, from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest. The whole story is going to take place in four months. It's a dark story, but it's going to turn to light. In 2018, Dawn and I uh, were at an Operation Christmas Child conference in Albuquerque. Uh, and uh, we're in Albuquerque. We're in Phoenix. Phoenix. We're in Phoenix. Uh, I, I should check all these things with you. I got the date from you, but I didn't get the location. Uh, we're in Phoenix for an Operation Christmas Child conference, and we got a chance to go to the Grand Canyon. We're overwhelmed by it. It's great. You should go to the Grand Canyon. It's an amazing site. Um, but one of the things we did is at midnight, we went out to see the night sky at the Grand Canyon. Um, it's one of the darkest places in the United States, if not the darkest place in the United States. We went out there at midnight because we knew you're far away from any city lights. And when we went out there, the number of stars in the sky was absolutely overwhelming. Um, we're pretty good with star. I mean, we, we know constellations here and there, and I've got an app on my phone. You know, I can throw it up there and go, oh, look, that's Ursa Major. Um, and we, we can find things. I mean, it took us 10 minutes to find the Big Dipper because there were so many stars in the sky. Do you know why we could see so many stars, so many blips of light? We could see so much because it was so dark. It's very often in those darkest of times that you see the light most clearly. And I think that's what the book of Ruth is going to teach us. In the days when the judges ruled and there's a famine in the land and there's death and there's loneliness and there's hopelessness on every side, the book of Ruth is going to say in the midst of that darkness, you can now see the real source of light. Kenway says it this way, God is present in his provision and care for his people even when they experience suffering. I'd put it two ways. <laughs> in the midst of hardship and difficulty, our choices and our view of God, choices like Ruth's and our view of God like Naomi, which is going to really change through the book, they have an impact on our future. They have an impact on how we live. Our choices are important and our view of God is very important. And I would remind you that God uses the ordinary person who has a rough life to accomplish great things. These are not priests. These are not prophets. There's no Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter, James, John. They're not in this book. This is a regular family from Bethlehem, and God is active in their lives, redeeming them. So I'm going to end this discussion of chapter one with a couple things I want to encourage you to do. First of all, write out your view of God's involvement in your life. Sit down, really. I mean, just say, how, how have I seen God involved in my life? And what are the attributes that are central to your view of him? What do you see as God's attributes? Um, just kind of chronicle it. Just go back. I saw God here. I saw God here. I saw God here. What attributes are there? 
Secondly, if you could replace your given name with a name that reflected uh, how God has been involved in your life, like Naomi does. She says, don't call me Naomi Pleasant, call me Mara Bitter. If you could reflect a name, if you could choose a name, um, what would the, your, the name be to reflect God's involvement in your life? And be a little more thoughtful than just, oh, blessed. You know, oh, yes, I'm blessed. I'll think about it a little bit more than that. Come on. Um, you know, somebody walked up to me, you know, and just said, you know, hey, your name's Ken, right? I said, don't call me Ken. <laughs> call me Brother Preach Pastor Man. That's what I want. <laughs> and then finally, in, in what way has God used dark days to help you grow and advance his purposes in your life? In what way has God used the darkness to help you see the light? I'm excited to be in this study of Ruth. I think it is a book that is so relevant for, um, for every one of us in this room. <laughs> because it's a book about regular people. It's a book uh, that, that shows God's gentle, very often hidden hand to accomplish great things in our lives. And what it asks us to do is make some faithful choices and maybe adapt and adjust your view of God to what he reveals about himself in this book. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today, to worship, to study. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to share our lives together. And as we share in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and eventually Boaz, Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would really focus us in on your hand in their lives so that we can see your hand in our lives and trust you and make faithful decisions and follow you. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.